may have heard uh, Keith Green was a famous uh, Christian musician in the 1970s. And he wrote a song entitled, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. One of the songs that my wife treasures the most. She likes Keith Green a lot. If you read his biography, there's actually a biography about his life. You can follow the discussion that he had with the producer as he was um, recording this song. And apparently, the words in the song were a little bit hard. And however, Keith insisted this was the line that he was walking. The text he was writing was mainly for Christians. And he says, as he put it, Christians should know better. And here's some of the lyrics that he wrote in this song, To obey is better than sacrifice. I, that is God, don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. While you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help of weeping of how it will be if you keep on ignoring my words. While you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming quickly to give back to you according to what you have done. Indeed, to obey is better than sacrifice. That is the theme that we see in our text tonight, 1 Samuel 15, verse 10 to 31. We finished last time to look through the book of Jonah for those who were with us. We wanted to continue to dive in the Old Testament, but this time we'll have just scattered texts from the Old Testament. However, united by one theme, we, we want to look at some of the episodes from the life of David. And I chose this passage of uh, 1 Samuel 15 as a framework or a starting point for what we're going to see as some episodes from, in coming weeks, episodes from the life of David. Mainly we want to look at what it means to be a man after God's heart as David was. But why do we start here then? This is not about David. Because David's wholehearted obedience, however, makes sense only in light of the downfall of Saul. And what we see here, in particular in this text, this chapter represents the crossroads between two characters, the fall of Saul and the rise of David. In other words, David is everything that Saul is not. And therefore, if we want to understand a man after God's heart as David, we have to start with Saul. And what we see here is that God wants obedience from the heart. That is what God requests of his children. Not mere act of religious motions like in the case of Saul. A first impression, unlike David's curly hairs, Saul is actually... Tall, strong, yet his appearance is contradicted by his true behavior under the closet. Saul is constantly, if you read the whole story of 1 Samuel, constantly going against God's command. He is a man impulsive by nature. He tends to overstep his boundaries over and over again. 
He acts often on his own initiative. He allows jealousy to overcome him completely. Therefore, his heart we see there is very different. It's a deceitful heart. And his disobedience ultimately leads Saul to his ruin. As his own choices cut him off from God and alienated him from the entire people of Israel. Uh, there are several debates on whether Saul was a believer. I, I take the strong view that actually Saul was not a true believer because of the behavior that he displays in the whole story. But this chapter helps us to understand his disobedience and by and large, the failure of the entire nation of Israel to rely on God as their king. That was the issue that had began, the request for a king, and that had brought the people to choose a man after their own selfish, wicked heart, Saul. Saul represents indeed a man after the people's heart. And Saul faced an incredible downfall for that. And so Samuel is now a prophet. We, we, we read this book written by Samuel. The entire book of Samuel was written by him. And he records the first disobedience of Israel, not just in, in Saul, but in the priests. Uh, chapter 4 to 7 in the book of Samuel speaks of Eli, and particularly Eli's son, and their disobedience, essentially taking offerings that were sacrificed to the Lord, polluting the worship of God, also with their own fornication. So it's a, a serious disobedience. And, and after that, there's a desire of Israel as a nation to have a king now. We are, remember, at the end of Judges, and there's a gradual move from Samuel, who is the last judge, to the beginning of the kings in Israel. And there's a gradual move also from everyone doing what was right in their own hearts, under the Judges, which brought a mess, to then following the leadership of a king appointed by God, which will be David, who will be after God's heart under the rulership of God. And so there's a warning in our text about what kind of king Saul will be already. Chapter 8 was warned, and he was anointed. He had first victories. He receives a first rebuke in chapter 13 because he fails to wait on Samuel to do the sacrifice. So he does this unauthorized worship he mixed the disobedience that he has with the pretense devotion and that is the issue of Saul and the fruit of this sin is a way that is far reaching than Saul initially realized he thought oh, it's not a big deal okay I did this well it is a big deal before God he he's denied the dynasty the succession of his throne is gone. And now this is the second episode of his transgression. The last straw which brings him to ultimately lose the entire kingdom. And this will be an irrevocable decision of God. After this chapter, the focus switches completely to David. The rise of David and the gradual downfall of Saul... Until finally you find him in his miserable condition, in a suicidal death, in battle, after 40 years of reign. Which end the entire book of 1 Samuel. But as we come to chapter 15, verse 19, 9 tells us of the nature of this disobedience. That he had once again offered sacrifice, but... In order for us to frame that disobedience, we have to understand some details here. 
referring to this word that in our text seven times is repeated, the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? Why was such a big disobedience for Saul's armies to take the spoils of the Amalekites? Now, technically the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Esau and they dwelled in the southern region of Israel and uh, in the region that is today known as Idumea, between the Red Sea and the Dead Sea. And they attempted, the Amalekite, the descendants of Esau, attempted to stop the Israelites when they marched through their territory as they come back from Egypt into the Promised Land. And they attacked Israel. And now God wants revenge. We can say this is a part of the holy word that is taking place under the theocratic system of the Old Testament. And it was important to God that this will be dealt with. And therefore God ordered Saul to devote everything to destruction. That devotion to destruction means that you take this booty that you take in a holy war. It must be thoroughly destroyed. We see, for example, in Joshua 7, an episode when uh, some Israelite failed to do that. They pick up some of the best spoil for themselves and they hide them under their tents. What happens next is that they are destroyed. God commands the destruction of Achans in Joshua chapter 7. Devoted to destruction, total destruction. It means that this is completely turned over to God. Dedicated to God, but also cursed by God. So if anyone tries to keep these things, he's inviting the curse on himself. He is banning or excommunicating himself from the people of God. This is a serious sin. So Saul's failure becomes more and more severe in light of this historical uh, detail. And what is the issue here in Saul's disobedience? The entire issue we see here in, in, in 1 Samuel 15 is that worship without obedience becomes pointless. Worship without obedience is rejected by God. So let, let's look at the first uh, five verses, verse 10 to 15 of our text. Worship there, you see that becomes vain because of disobedience. When Saul essentially uses worship as a cover-up for his own covetousness and for his own vain glory. In verse 12, Samuel finds Saul and he has to rebuke him once again. But where does he find him? He's there in Mount Carmel. Now, if you know the Old Testament, Mount Carmel is the mountain where uh, there was the prophets of Baal. And they have been judged for their idolatry by Elijah. Sadly, in the steps of these idolaters, here you have Saul, who now erects a monument for himself, in his own honor. Like a road marker in scripture, as a memorial for himself, dedicated to his victory, his triumph, as a trophy. So, first thing you notice here is that not only Saul is blind about his sin, but he idolatrously glories in himself. He brags about his victory. He goes around parading himself as the winner when in reality he has disobeyed God and the clear commandment of God and that there's nothing to glory about in disobedience. So finally Samuel approaches this guilty man in verse 13. And strangely Saul greets him cheerfully. Blessed are you of the Lord. Isn't it true that sometimes people in, in the south can say bless your heart. But in reality, 
they want to maybe make a critic or a point. It is true of Saul here that the proverb says, If one blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted as cursing. Proverbs 27, 14. In other words, the hypocrisy doesn't stop in Saul. He says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I have completed everything you told me to do. I'm saying this publicly as a king that I'm kept and accomplished what you told me to do. That is a lie. And Saul knows that this is a lie. There's nothing worse, friends, in the eyes of God than a professing believer that is boasting of obeying what blatantly is disobeying. Samuel obviously, as a prophet, doesn't buy this. He comments on the noise of animals, which testifies that Saul is indeed lying. Saul did not devote everything that the Amalekites possessed to destruction as God had ordered him. And so in verse 15, Saul's reply seeks to pretend, okay, I, I got caught in my sin. I'm going to pretend that actually I was doing this because I wanted to sacrifice it to the Lord as an offering. And we know that in the Old Testament, offerings and sacrifices were intended to expiate or propitiate the favor of God from His wrath against our sin. But what happens? What happens like Cain, that he, his heart, as he's bringing the sacrifice, is not right before God, whereas Abel's heart, as he's offering the sacrifice, is right. God rejects because he knows the heart of all men. And he does not look this offering and sacrifice, this claim, with favor. While this is the apparent cause of sparing the the, the, the flock, we know it was not the reason they actually spared the, the, the flock. They did that because of personal covetousness. But now he's caught in his trap by Samuel, the prophet. So Saul tries to offer some reparation. That is not how a repented person behaves. You'll find out how foolish it is to even try to bargain with God. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. In other words, a sacrifice becomes inacceptable before God. Verse 10 and 11, God tells Samuel, the prophet, clearly, unmistakably, Saul, despite all of his claim of devotion and desire to worship the Lord. This uh, worship the Lord is a, a word that Saul repeats obsessively. Here in uh, verse 10, 11, 26, 30, he wants to bow down and prostrate. He wants to to pay homage and allegiance to God. He outwardly wants to worship, but his worship is vain because of his moral compromises and his disloyalty, his disrespect and rebellion toward the clear commandment of God. And that is undeniable because his sin is not repented. While in verse 31, Samuel agrees to worship the Lord with Saul, we know that from this moment on to the death of Saul, they never meet. And actually Saul loses the Holy Spirit. God remains forever deaf to the worship of Saul. Saul's disobedience is a great reason, even for divine regret. I regret that I made Saul king, as if, as if it was even possible for God to regret or something. He knew. The point is God is rejecting Saul as king because he has rejected the Lord by the very fact of obeying the, the, the commandment of God over and over again. And Samuel was grieved by this. He cries all night. He, he is showing the repentance that Saul has no knowledge about. 
This should have been Saul, weeping on his tears and night over his sin. But unlike the godly Samuel, Saul has absolutely no concern for breaking the law of God. Thomas Manton, a Puritan, said, Partial obedience is an argument of insincerity. That Saul pretending to worship while disobeying makes this worship completely vain. What we're talking about tonight is not just sin. It's flagrant violation to the will of God, a slap in the face of God through words of devotion. That is the insult of Saul toward God. When you reject the clear teaching from the Bible, but you still claim to want to do what is right with your mouth, you're practically already an apostate in the eyes of God. Even a king is not above the divine law. Even a king. Saul's words here make me think of Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, there's this picture of this adulterous woman. Both Saul and this woman has big words in their mouths. They speak of sacrifice and blessed of the Lord. They're, they're very religious in, the, in trying to attract the person into sin. They, however, their actions speak louder than their words. There's no more offensing thing to God that you should cover your sin under the cloth of religion. Which is what the adulterous woman does and what Saul does here. That is very different from what we, say, we see in Psalm 50. Psalm 50 verse 16 and 17. But to the wicked... God says, what right have you to recite my statutes and to bear my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. That is the Saul syndrome, we could call it. Is when you become okay with pretense. You think that you can fool even God. But Saul will be proved wrong in this story. And I know there are some people indeed who love to go to church, love to appear religious, even wear the priestly clothes of Christian profession and saying, I'm a Christian, even claim Jesus as the throne of their hearts. But their lives, you look at their life, they're completely detached from their claims. In other words, Christ by their action is the throne from their hearts. Their approach to Christianity is no different than the pagans. What a pagan person does is, is trying to appease and direct the gods to fulfill their own selfish goal. As if God is untrue like them. That is the idolatry in the heart that is going on. The worst thing is when they know what they're doing is wrong and they still think it's okay. They have no clue how a holy God can really cost high for their disobedience. But let's look at the counterfeit obedience of Saul. Verse 24 to 31. The counterfeit obedience. That amidst the sin... Under the pressure to confess his sin, Saul admits and, and he says, okay, I sinned. But that's where it's not true repentance because he doesn't ponder the consequences and he doesn't bring it back to God. In verse 40, 24 at this point, only because he has no, no longer any way to avoid the unavoidable, finally Saul confesses, I have sinned. But here's the reason that he adds. He said, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See that? In other words, he gave in to the request of people. I remember the movie, if you know the movie Braveheart, the movie about the Scot Scottish uh, rebellion. There was William Wallace and he, he meets this uh, noble that finally wants to partner with William Wallace to go to battle. He agrees to go and fight against the English. 
The only problem is by the time they get to the battlefield, he takes a mask and starts to chase William Wallace to make sure that he will lose the battle. And his mask is taken off. William Wallace recognizes who was behind their defeat. Now, he loved the courage of William Wallace. But why on earth would he betray him then? And the reason is, just like Saul, the pressure of his coward father in the story and other nobles and, and the fear of men. The fear of men. Saul is intimidated by people. He holds in honor their opinion over God's. And this is his regular sin. He's always completely intoxicated by what men think of him. You look at his story. Later when David comes back to town and, and, the, and the woman's chance is like a, uh, Saul slays his thousands, but David slayed his 10,000. Oh, he could not hear that. He could not stand those words. But verse 25, yes, you see, Saul now is weeping. But this not, these are not weep, tears of repentance. These are capricious tears, we could say. He, he pleads and asks Samuel to pardon him and come back to him as if nothing happened. That, 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 that's, that's what he's requesting. Let's worship the Lord together as if I didn't know, disobey God. But Samuel obviously refuses and he reminds him that the, the, the price for this is disobedience is great. He will lose the entire kingdom. Things are not going to be like before. Sin brings brokenness. Consequences are far-reaching. There's not a genuine repentance. It's a counterfeit obedience. Be why? Because Saul is more concerned about preserving his reputation than about preserving the reputation and the honor of God. Verse 27. As a symbol of the loss of the kingdom, Saul unintentionally tore the edge of Samuel's robe. And in the overall scope of the book of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you already see here that from now on the monarchy of Israel will be divided. And it's already in the inception, foreshadowing the division of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Saul was probably hanging on the on prophet's robes so that he would not leave him. But that's a definite departure and he lost the kingdom. And God gives this prophecy. He will give it to a neighbor better than him. Which now introduces us to our character, which is David. Next evening service, Lord willing, we'll, we'll meet him. Man after God's own heart, a man who is not perfect, okay? But he reacts, his reaction after sinning is very different than Saul here. When David was caught in sin, he immediately repented. He immediately recognized the truth that Saul had no clue about. And what was the truth that he had no clue about? Look at Psalm 51. Verse 16 to 17. Psalm 51 says this. For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would have given it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is what's missing in Saul. In verse 29, Saul puts this false hope, and, and, and Samuel has to put that false hope at rest. He says, the strength of Israel does not change his mind. The glory of Israel, the eternal one of Israel, the triumpher of Israel, which alone has the glory. He alone is prominent. He alone is eminent. 
He doesn't share his glory with others. He doesn't accept silly monuments to false pretended obedience, let alone man. He says he doesn't lie. This is something that God is completely free from. There is no lie in God. And he doesn't relent, change his mind. Does that sound familiar? We just went through Jonah. Remember the key word that we saw throughout Jonah. Unlike Jonah, however, here we have a verse where change of mind and repentance is indeed in view as something that God cannot do ever by virtue of who He is. God is unchangeable. God's purpose is immutable. It never changed. We don't have to even go to Jonah. I mean, look at the same passage here, verse 10. Verse 10. Unless, unless you take that as a contradiction because it's using the same words. God repents of making Saul king. But then here in verse 29 of the same chapter, he says, he's not like a man that changes his mind. See that? So some to solve this have taken it to mean that God has a limited knowledge of the future, which is absurd. That's clearly not what's happening here in the story. Obviously, the word has a different meaning on this, even on this same passage. In other words, God, unlike man, is unchangeable in his plan and his purposes. He does everything according to his plan. All that he's doing is adjusting the course of action outwardly as it appears to us, to man, to something that already knew was going to happen. Numbers 23, 19 speaks about that. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. See that? The God in this story saw all too well what was coming. Unlike what some evangelicals wrongly claim, God never changes. Nor does he need to learn something new. God is perfect in his knowledge. But Saul certainly, oh, he certainly hopes that God will forget his sin. He certainly hopes that God will change his mind. But God is not ignorant of the future. And he doesn't change. God has perfect knowledge of all things. And, and this is, means he's sovereign over all things that come to pass. Therefore, he's not caught off guard by events, nor does he change his mind. He's not fickable. He's not mutable. He's not variable in any of his nature or purposes. Now, this is a threat to people like Saul, who blatantly disobey God and, and uh, come and weep. Yes, they weep, but they weep too late like he saw, ultimately proving that they're actually reprobates. That's why I take the, the view that there's no repentance in Saul. He is an, an unbeliever. However, the truth of God's unchangeability is a, actually a great comfort for the believer. Why is that? Because if this is true, then the promise of salvation in the believer will never enter into jeopardy. That if God says in His Word that He will save me, that we who are his true children are and will always be true children of God, no matter the changes, no matter the ups and downs. God, remember, is unlike men, unlike human beings. I mean, we, we change our mind constantly, particularly Saul. You think of the day-to-day -day shifts of opinions to borderline personality disorders, from evolving politics to people not knowing what is a man or what is a woman right now. Humanity is completely, constantly changing. Therefore, humanity is unreliable. The trouble is when people now create a God after their own image, like the pagan gods, 
that they can change, that they can adjust themselves to my human sinfulness and close an eye to it. And they think that God can work according to the inconstant nature they possess. That is absurdity. God doesn't go back on his words. And that is what Saul fails to see. Even in verse 30, at the end of our story, Saul is persistent. He's persistent, but also without any shame, I want to say. I mean, another sign he's not really repenting. He has no shame of transgressing God's word right before everyone. And he, and he says, I have sinned, he says. Okay, he's confessing sin, but look at the next words. Yet please, Samuel, honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. You see, he's just heard Samuel declaring that the glory of Israel will not change his mind, but he seems to be deaf. All that his thoughts rotate around is not God. Is that God may grant me some of that honor. The same word that is for glory, that God doesn't share his glory. Oh, please honor me now. Please give me some of that glory. Respect me, Samuel. Treat me with dignity before others, even if I've sinned, as if nothing happened. He fears men and God, the people's opinion over God's opinions. And particularly God's opinion of himself, which is far more important here. Which tells you, again, he's not really repenting. All that he can think of is maintaining his good reputation before people. Not the fact that he disobeyed God. This is why, as we'll see in coming weeks, glory fled from Saul who followed it, but followed David who fled from it. These are the words of John Trapp, another Puritan, that while God remains firm, firm, God is firm, Saul wavers. And why does he wavers? Because he's trapped by the fear of men. The fear of men is indeed a snare. Saul throughout his life is indeed completely consumed, enslaved by people's opinion of himself. He, if you look at previous chapters, he fears the troop might desert him. So he offers this sacrifice without waiting on Samuel. Clear instruction from God. He admits his sin, which means just because you confess a sin, by the way. Oh yeah, I confessed my sin once. Yeah, that doesn't mean you have actually turned away from that sin. He asks Samuel to honor him before people. He's obsessed because women attributed more victory to David than to himself in a silly song. He is completely consumed by the demon of the fear of man. May we all escape such trap, friends. Then that God be our fear, our dread. If we disobey him, may that be our true reverence. And if we do so, all will be well. But this requires, friends, pursuing actions that indeed will make you unpopular to others. I mean, to think about Samuel now. True obedience is indeed costly. Spiritual leaders, I mean, particularly, you know, think about pastors like Saul, of all people, must obey the commands of Scripture, even when unpopular, even when sacrificial. I mean, what, what can be said of us? Do we have that spirit or we resemble here the the men-pleasing way of Saul. Let us look to the true obedience now in verse 16 to 23 of our text. How does true obedience look like? And the first thing I want to say is that true obedience does not excuse sin. True obedience does not justify itself or its sin. Verse 16 and 17, Samuel stops Saul right there and tells him to be quiet. Enough. I mean, this is a bold command. You think about it. This is, this is a prophet. He is approaching the king. The king could could cut his head 
in an instant, and yet he tells him to, to be quiet. That's another man. That's another who fear, a man who fears God more than he fears his earthly king. Samuel doesn't want to hear another word. He doesn't want to hear Saul use God's name in vain. I mean, Saul mentions Yahweh's name many times here, while at the same time, he is lying. He is compromised. But here, Samuel sends his prophecy to the disobedient king, and he says, when you were little in your own eyes, when, back, back, back when you had humility, you take Saul in chapter 9, verse 21. He was so surprised when he first met Samuel. And Saul admitted he was of the smallest tribe of Israel, of the least of the families, too little to be anointed king. And yet now he was made the head of the 12th tribe. How is it? Is that the way you repay God with his gifts toward you? That's how kind God has been to, to Saul? And this is the way he repays him? That's why often, as we see here, and in future weeks, the root of our sins, the root of our bad decisions, it's out of ingratitude or forgetfulness over what God's kindness has already granted us, which will be always, should always be in the front of our eyes. Verse 18 and 19, Samuel reminds Saul of the mission from God that he fails to fulfill. Everything was to be devoted to destruction. Instead, you swoop down on the spoil that you should have been utterly destroyed. They have rushed and grasped with chaos and noise, not just here, but even in chapter 14, 33, 34, the same thing. The army was hungry. They, they were eating meat with blood, sinning against the Lord again. And verse 20 and 21, Saul continues to claim that he had, he had obeyed. Okay, he's a stubborn, stubborn, pure stubborn in his unrepentance. On the one hand, he admits that Yes, they should have been utterly destroyed, but we did that as a sacrifice to the Lord. I'm going to outweigh my sin with doing good here. That's not how it works. Even Saul's own mouth condemns him. Not only he sins, but he knows it was wrong, and yet he does it here, and he rationalizes his sin to sacrifice to the Lord. Pure mockery. No, true, true obedience addresses sin at, at, at its root, and that's what we don't see here. Verse 22, the heart of our text, friends. There's this rhetorical question for Saul and for all of us, from which we go back to that principle, to obey is better than sacrifice. As the Lord a great delight in sacrifices, as God pleasure and joy, is this what God truly, ultimately desires? I mean, you can sacrifice stolen things to God that don't belong to you, but they are worth nothing to God. God is not mocked. What God is pleased, is pleased with is obeying the voice of the Lord. That is the same word of the Shema here of Israel. And that word is not just hearing with your words, but there is an obedience that follows with hearing the word of God. Obedience matters far more to God than doing an outward sacrifice and and then he continues behold which means listen carefully Saul here's some comparative statement we have to obey is better than sacrifice that is something that must be done first and uh, verse 23 the standard to which anyone should bow himself like Saul who knows nothing about and he needs to waken himself about is that rebellion is a sin as witchcraft there is a progression of sin it starts with the heart. And if you don't deal with the heart, it will spring in worse sin. Rebellion is already a, an obstinate disobedience. 
It's, uh, it's when you resist the authority of God. And it's almost a play on word in Hebrew, by the way. That the rebellion and the fat of animals in, in Hebrew are, are spelled with the same word. And that's why it's hard to render in English. It's just musical in Hebrew. But it, that rebellion is as witchcraft. Divination. I mean, remember at the end of his life, where is Saul? Where is Saul at the end of his life? He cannot hear a voice from God. So here goes to a witch. And he, he tries to get that witch to raise Samuel. Out of desperation, he resorts to witchcraft before he dies. In other words, the seed form of his fall is already at work. Because that's how foolishly Saul persists in his disobedience. And if you don't deal with sin, it will grow until it consumes you and it destroys you. It brings you to death. It shows us that the selfish refusal to submit to the commandment of God results not only in slavery to sin, but it opens to the realm of the demonic. All of sorts of demonic influence in your life. You look at people who are under addiction. They often speak about things almost in demonic ways. And because it's true. You are opening up the well of Satan. And, and Satan loves to come in if you give him an inch. Friends, for the life of you and your loved ones. Please do not seriously ponder that before you embark in such path of stubborn rebellion. Disobedience. Even if it's little, even if it's a little window, it springs up. It continues the comparison. Stubbornness is as idolatry. The stubbornness that is in view here is mischief. Deceit through false words that in previous verses we heard Saul saying, he's lying. Again, the semantic plain words is there because a lie also means idol in the, in the Hebrew. It's, it, but a, a stubbornness, that type of mischief is as idolatry. You're already committing idolatry. Yes, you don't have a statue. You're bowing down, but you're already doing it. You're rejecting God's word now. And God rejects you, says Samuel to Saul. This makes me think of driving. When you drive, you notice the law. How do you notice the law? You look at your rear mirror and there's uh, the cops. You immediately glance to see if you're traveling at the right speed, do you? The immediate presence of the law has the effect of you wanting to keep that law. If, however... You're speeding. The presence of the law behind you, uh, it produces another type of concern, another type of apprehension. This is because, friends, whether we like it or not, the law of God will not take 99 for 100. It will not take 99 for 100, William Seckers once said. In other words, there's no roundup with a perfect God. And that is the thing that Saul has forgotten. Samuel as to put a break on the deception of Saul by pointing the need of obedience before outward devotion. To obey is better than sacrifice. And that disobedience, by the way, has effectively brought him to disaster, Saul. I mean, do you realize obedience is more than this surface compliance to, to things? It is actually involving keeping the actual commands contained in God's word in their totality. That is what obedience is. Do you understand? It starts with the heart. That it, where, where there's a, a sinful thought in the heart is already a, sp a spring for sin. The seriousness of disobedient God. So many professing Christians are quick to declare themselves obedience to God in any number of things. But then you find out through their behavior that doesn't line up with the, the full teaching of the scripture. And the question is not either you obey or you sacrifice. 
but you do both of them. And if, however, what, what tends to happen more often, the recurring problem is that you err on this one side of obedience and you continue to offer sacrifice, you claim outward devotion to God, you try to compensate your shortcoming, but obedience is the thing that truly pleases the Lord. And sacrifice is not always obedience. That's, that's the self-deception that you can, well, I, I've done so many things for the Lord. Yes, but where was your heart when you do, did those things? The rebellion mixed with worship is a sting in the eyes of God. And it makes everything completely pointless. You can do things for God, yes, for all the wrong reasons. It's not that worship is not important to God, but what matters the most to Him is certainly obedience. So that if obedience lacks, the entire machine of your spiritual life is completely broken. You're rejected by God. He's deaf to your prayers. Can you imagine? And all this mess can only be fixed by true repentance. The way that the law reflects the holiness of God it is that in His sight, a murderous thought is already murder. An adulterous thought is already adultery. And what we don't realize is that there's a tremendous cost for our disobedience. Think about Adam and Eve. The issue remains there, disobedience. That Adam failed miserably in obeying God. With this one simple command. And like Adam, all of us are transgressors. We bring unworthy sacrifices to the Lord. That is the truth. Our works, all of our good works are filthy rags in the sight of a holy, perfect God. But now, that's where God steps in. You see, the sacrifices that Saul was doing were supposed to point to a reality. What was the reality of these animal sacrifices? When you offered an animal sacrifice, you were laying your sin on that sacrifice. You were transferring your sins to that sacrifice. And the Israelites were, were supposed by faith in God to plead forgiveness to that, through that sign. Does that remind us of something? Some, something that happened 2,000 years later. Friends, we have, a, unlike Saul, a perfect king. The perfect king of God's people, the ultimate king of Israel, the son of David, who was wholeheartedly obedient, who came on this earth, he never sinned once. He presented himself to the Father as a sacrifice, a lamb. And it was a very different sacrifice than Saul. Perfect. He accomplished the work given him by the Father. When he came to the world, he said these words, and I quote Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 7, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. For Jesus to obey is better than sacrifice. It is his obedience, friends, that makes his sacrifice on the cross perfect and acceptable before God. And why did he do all that? Were it not to save us from ourselves, save us from our deceit, save us from our lies, save us from our stubborn blindness, but also commanding us to turn away from any hypocrisy, from, to repent. To receive that second grace that comes with faith and trust in this sacrifice. 
which means I want to say that people should approach the sacrifice of Christ with the proper motivation. That it's not that Jesus died for me so I can keep leading as I always did. I just don't have to go to hell. That's great. That is not true, true reverent faith. Another example of Saul's syndromes is this, the false Christian. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of God. And Jesus warned us that few among the professing Christians will actually make it. If you unreverentially are just looking for a free pass not to go to hell, but God is a stranger and you despise His commandment with your disobedience, that I want to tell you that Christ's sacrifice is benefiting you nothing. So beware lest your blatant hypocrisy makes you like Saul weep and drag yourself on the ground once you have to appear to the throne of the living God to give an account for your life. And I want you to know, it will be too late once you're there to change. Only to find God rejecting you. Understand, friend, now that repentance accompanies and follows genuine faith. And repentance is not just a change of mind, which definitely Saul needs. But there's more to that. There's a complete turnaround in, in, in his entire life. It now flows in an obedient walk. All sort of behaviors that no longer superficially, no longer pretending, but not because of your deeds. It is still because God's grace is at work now. That truly the effectual grace of God works in your life and brings that transformation and makes that possible. Friends, God can make the heart clean even of the most wretched if they turn from their sin and trust in that perfect sacrifice. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice because this time the one who was sacrificed was also completely obedient, perfect, spotless. So how do we conclude here this passage as we begin this cycle of sermons on the episodes from the life of David? The story here in our text concludes in verse 32 all the way to 35 with one small business left to take care of actually carry out the original command of God that Saul had failed. Samuel now obey, unlike Saul, and God ordered to kill the king of the Amalekite. And here you have Agag. And it mattered to God that the wicked must die for all the innocent blood that is in his hands. Look at the news right now. It's all the Hamas. Saul's disobedience was no small thing here. Do you really want to please God? Do you want to do his will as written in the scripture? Even among those like us who are professing Christian, your strict obedience to your Savior's commands matter more than any outward form of religious going through the motion. You believe it or not, but your obedience to God's word matters more than your active participation in church activities. Your giving, like the song of uh, Keith Green said, how much you tithe, or even your many times a day you pray. Friends, some of us, might be facing, might have faced, might will face, or me in the midst of some neglected duty in your life. And I want you to know, whether it's dishonest gain, whether it's lie, whether it's gossip, whether it's working intentionally against your neighbor, or secret immorality, whatever it is, I plead to you, stop disobeying. See it for what it is in the eyes of God, that obedience is better than sacrifice. Disobey no longer. Get out of that deal with the devil immediately. I'm telling you, if you don't, 
If you don't do it right on that very point, God cares nothing about everything else you might be doing right. That's how serious it is in the eyes of God. And to the unconverted, obedience remains still a command, by the way. God commands you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to seek to bring sacrifices with good works or personal efforts. Not to just sing a, a nice hymn or attend a Christian conference or give in your body to be burned. I mean, think about Muslims. They're able to give their body to be burned for a cause and they still go to hell. You don't seek relief through any other means, friends, than forsaking your sin and trusting and believing in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that He has offered at the cross. And your failure to trust in Him is disobedience. Unbelief is disobedience, which will have a high price. Friends, there is an eternal destiny that awaits. So my final plea to you is to obey the gospel. There and there, only there, obedience and sacrifice finally meet. There and only there, justice and mercy kiss each other. Let us pray.